You may be seated. Please take your Bibles and open with me to Romans chapter 9. We've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 9 this morning, really a whole new section to the letter, chapters 9, 10, and 11. There are many, many themes in these three chapters, so many that scholars argue and fuss over what are the main themes and what are the subordinate themes. But I think that you will find that there are basically three things that come to the surface, or three main themes that Paul is going to give to us in these verses. The first one is his concern for his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Paul is concerned for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And then secondly, how that Gentiles will be included in the people of God. It will no longer be simply the Jews, no longer those from national Israel, but Gentiles will be included into the people of God. And then a third theme that runs through the chapters is the fact that in Christ Jesus we see what Paul will call the true Israel of Almighty God, the true Israel of God. And so with a synopsis of those themes, I'd like to look this morning at just a few verses, verses 1 through 5, as we consider the Apostle Paul and uh, some things that he brings forth in these verses. They're character traits of a conscientious Christian. And I think you will agree with me that these particular characteristics and traits are taken from the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, these first five verses present three things. Number one, Paul's anguish over the unbelief of his fellow Jews, and we see that in verses one and two. Secondly, Paul's willingness to be accursed for his unbelieving Jewish brethren. And we see that in verse 3. And then thirdly, Paul's emphasis on the advantages of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And so with a synopsis of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless these moments together as we study his word. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we long to see Jesus in Him only. Forgive the preacher, for his sins are many. And we pray that you would show forth the radiance of your glory through the foolishness of the message preached. Do these things and more, Lord, and we'll give you all the praise and glory for all that you do in our lives. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice Paul's anguish over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. And we see that in verses 1 and 2 of the passage. Paul is eager to convince the Christians in Rome that he is honest and not lying. First thing he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is agonizing to say, I'm being completely honest here. I'm not lying. Listen to me. Now, why would Paul say such a thing? Why would Paul begin this chapter with such a statement? Well, most likely because Paul 
has turned out to be the great enemy of the Jews. You remember if you study the pages of the New Testament, the Jews hated Paul. They tried to kill him. They stoned him one time, and God miraculously kept him alive. But they cannot stand the Apostle Paul. And so many attempts have been made on his life. And one would think that Paul would respond the natural, normal, human way. Do unto others before they do unto you. (laughs) One would think that Paul would return the favor. These people hate me. I'm going to hate them. Nevertheless, we see in verse 2, Paul does not look on his fellow Jews with contempt or even hatred. He shows love for them. He shows a deep concern. Look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, for the Apostle Paul to say that about his fellow Jews is something I would consider miraculous. The ability to love one's enemies, especially those enemies who hate you, not just don't like you, but hate you, and want to do away with you, to have the ability to love somebody like that is supernatural. It's supernatural. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. Why does Paul suffer his anguish and sorrow over his Jewish brethren? Because he knows and he believes the truth that all unbelief will be judged. And those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will indeed perish. And as they will face the wrath and curse of Almighty God. So what motivates Paul according uh, to these verses? What makes Paul feel the way he does? He knows what it feels like to be lost and separated from God. You remember the Apostle Paul was the one who was breathing out threats and curses. He tried to get Christians to blaspheme. He put them in jail. He went after them, wanting to kill them in order to suppress this movement. But as you know, according to the book of Acts, God made an appearance to the Apostle Paul. And the Lord Jesus himself met him on the road to Damascus. And he changed his heart, and he changed the course of this man's entire life. But for the rest of Paul's life, he would lament the fact that he was the chief of sinners. Why? Because he tried to kill and incarcerate Christians. Paul knew what it was like to be lost. He knew what it was like to suffer from guilt and misery and anger and bitterness until Jesus Christ delivered him until he knew the joy of being set free from the darkness of his sins and brought into the peace and presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knew what it meant to be saved. And here's a principle for us. A genuine salvation in Christ leads to a genuine concern for the salvation of others, including our enemies. A genuine salvation in Christ leads to a genuine concern for the salvation of others, including our enemies. Paul went from place to place preaching the gospel. What drives a man to be stoned in one town and then get up from the stones to go in again and start preaching again? What drives this man 
to go from city to city and to put up with the threats and the attempts on his life. What drives this man? I'll tell you what drives him. He has an authentic relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he knows what it is to have his sins forgiven and dismissed. He knows what it is to enjoy peace with God and a salvation that will last forever. If you have that kind of genuine salvation in Christ, you can't help but want others to enjoy it and to discover it, perhaps, for the first time. Paul's anguish over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. Now, another item I want you to see in verse 3 is Paul's willingness to be accursed for his unbelieving Jewish brethren. Look at verse 3. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here we see the depth of Paul's love for his unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters. And once again, it's clearly a supernatural love, loving others as God has loved us. You see, we don't muster up this kind of love. This kind of love is a gift from God. It's called agape love. It's not just a friendship love. It's not an erotic love. It is a deep-down, sacrificial-type love. That's what the Greek word agape means. It means for one to be willing to expend him or herself for the sake of others. And that's exactly what Paul is verbalizing here, once again, because his heart has been changed. When you taste the love of God and the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, you can't help but love others and long for their salvation, even to this point, that you would be willing to be expended for their sake. Now, Paul knows, Paul knows he'll never be cursed When we finish Romans chapter 8, he finished by saying, what can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing in all of creation. Yet here he's sharing his heart with us. If me being cursed, if me taking their place would satisfy the justice of God and bring them into the light, I would do it. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that, quote, you be rooted and grounded in love, and that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's quite a statement, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's a supernatural love. It is a love that changes one's heart. And imagine the Apostle Paul, who at one time was forcing Christians to blaspheme, who was hunting down Christians to put them in jail and to kill them. Imagine this man now saying, if I could be cursed in order for them to be saved... I would do it. That is a supernatural love. Paul's willingness to be accursed for his unbelieving Jewish friends. Now notice the third thing quickly. Paul's emphasis on the advantages of the Jews. Look at verses 4 and 5. He gives this catalog or this list of these numerous advantages the Jews enjoyed. 
Paul basically gives a summary of the history of Israel in these two verses. Verse 4, who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. He speaks of the glory. God created all things and he revealed himself in his glory to the created order, especially the human beings. The covenants. You read through the Old Testament, you find promise after promise, covenant after covenant with Adam and Eve, with Abraham, with Noah, with Moses and the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, ultimately with David. You find the law of God, which was given graciously only to the children of Israel. You see the temple service, that is the principles and practices of divine worship, as outlined in the book of Leviticus, and the promises, the numerous promises of God and his steadfast love and care. Now you'll notice at the end of verse 5, this is very important. He speaks of this entire history of Israel, and he ends by saying, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. That's where the Jews would stop listening. <laughs> Paul's talking about the history of Israel, and they would say yea and amen to all these other things, the law, the patriarchs, the promises. But you see, Paul's conclusion is, from whom also is the Christ, who is over all God blessed forever. This is a transition point. Paul is saying essentially that Jesus is the fulfillment or the culmination of all the advantages of the Jews. He's saying when you look at the covenants, if you look far enough, you'll see Christ. When you look at the law, if you look far enough, you'll see Jesus, who was the giver of the law and the one who obeyed it perfectly. If you look far enough, you'll see that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And that's the beauty of this. You see, Paul's anguish over unbelief is really a picture of the greater anguish over unbelief and the lost children of God, which we see in Jesus. We see Christ's anguish and love for the lost in our gospel reading this morning in Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 34, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a man or just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. See, God's love for lost sinners, we see it throughout the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God told Ezekiel the prophet to say, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. God's love for the lost is the same under the new covenant in Christ as it was under the old covenant. First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter 3, 9. Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Just as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, The Lord desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Indeed, the only difference is that the, old, the new covenant, under the new covenant, God's love stretches far beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the anguish and the love of Jesus Christ for those who do not know him is infinitely greater and serves as the example for Paul's anguish, not just for the Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. Jesus Christ longs for you to know him, for your heart to be open to him, for your mind to be changed by him. And only the Spirit of God can do that. Christ's anguish and love for all the lost children of God. Secondly, Christ's willingness to be accursed for all the lost children of God. We read about it in the Old Testament, about God's Messiah and his delight and willingness to come to do the will of Almighty God. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. God's Messiah would come, and not only willingly, but in delight, lay down his life for the sins of his people. That's why Hebrews 2 or 12.2 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, set down at the right hand of God Almighty. See, Paul said, I'm willing to be a curse for my brethren, but he couldn't back it up. If Paul died, if Paul was assassinated, it wouldn't do anything for his Jewish brethren. That is not true with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came according to the predetermined plan of God. And he suffered the curse of Almighty God, the wrath of Almighty God for your sins and mine when he died on the cross. He took your place. Which neither Paul nor anybody else in human history take. He was the substitute, the sin-bearing substitute when he was on Calvary. And all the curses of Almighty God against those who break covenant with him were poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, it wasn't the physical torture and pain of crucifixion that hurt Jesus the most. It was the separation from the Father for the first time in his life. As the Father turned his face away and poured out his wrath on the Son. We discover in the New Testament that it was the Father's will to send the Son Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a beautiful statement. When Christ saves us, we become the righteousness of God in him because we're united to him. That's why we call this the body of Christ. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, Then this is love. Love was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, that is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus not only laid down his life willingly, but he did it lovingly. 
That's why John 15, 13, that great passage, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. Paul said, I'd just as soon be accursed if it would save some of my Jewish brethren. Jesus said it and backed it up. And he's the only one in human history who could say it in truth. Jesus came not only with a deep concern for your soul, for your life, for your body, for your lostness, but he also came to be accursed for you and me that we might become sons and daughters of God. One third application, not only Christ's anguish and his willingness to be accursed, but Christ's role as the true Israel of God for all the lost children of God. This is one theme that Paul's going to develop all the way through these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And it's going to culminate at the end, at the end of chapter 11, where Christ is the true Israel of God. What do I mean by that? Well, in verses 4 and 5, Paul's brief history of Israel demonstrates the numerous advantages the Jews had by the grace of God. And they were blessed to be a blessing to the nations. But sadly, they failed in many ways throughout the centuries. This is why the Bible calls them in Isaiah chapter 5 a degenerate vine. God chose the Jews and he blessed them to be a blessing, but they became selfish and proud, and they turned their back on the nations. They didn't care. And they committed idolatry and turned away from Jehovah over and over again. And Isaiah 5 says, The Lord who planted this vine, he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. What more was there that I could do for my vineyard than I have done for it? They were a false, degenerate vine. This is why Paul raises the question, so to speak, in chapter 5. They had all these advantages. How is it they didn't believe? We'll study that further next week about God's sovereignty with reference to belief. But here, Paul kind of scratches his head. I don't get it. They don't believe. And he's going to explain that to us next time. They were the false degenerate vine. And this is why when Jesus comes in John 15... He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. True in the sense of genuine. Israel failed over and over again to produce the fruit that Jehovah sought. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came, and he says, I'm the true vine. Every branch in me bears fruit. And if you cling to me, you seek to know me and love me, I will enable you to produce that fruit that the Father seeks. This list in 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, is truly remarkable. All the advantages point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, we should be correct in saying that Christ is both the source and the fulfillment of these advantages. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible. And all things have been created through him and for him. Christ is behind it all. He's the very agent of creation. And so all these wonderful advantages that you see that belong to the Jews by birthright, they begin and end with the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ, 
himself. In fact, in Romans 11.36, Paul will wrap this up by saying, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And if you look back at verse 5 with me, I believe the NIV and the ESV give a better translation. Paul says, Who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all? God bless forever. What Paul is essentially saying, according to the Greek, is the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. He's pointing to Jesus, and he's saying, this is your God in flesh. This is the one who is behind all of these advantages and blessings, and to whom all of these things point to. He is the source and the culmination of all the advantages of the Jews. Why? Because Christ is the true Israel. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the covenants given to Israel. And Christ is both lawgiver and the only one able to keep the law. And the temple and the promises and the patriarchs all find their beginning and their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Let me challenge you this morning with these three things. Number one, have you tasted Have you experienced the anguish and the concern of Christ for you? You'll know it when it happens. The Holy Spirit will move and touch your heart. And you will not be settled until you get your questions answered. I remember a young man in Dallas, Texas, working at a law firm. And I talked to him one time, and he knew I was studying for the ministry. And he says, I don't want to talk about that Jesus stuff. I don't want to talk about church stuff. Don't mention that stuff to me. I said, okay. About a half hour later, he was approaching me. His name was Joe. And he started asking questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, questions about all this. And I answered his questions. But then later on, I reminded him. and said, you don't want me to talk about these things, but you keep bringing them up. Why is that? And he confessed that he had an interest that he could not get rid of. That's the Holy Spirit, I believe driving and moving a person to see God's love and concern for a lost condition. Number two, have you been made aware of Christ's willingness to die in your place? You see, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that means that we are subject to God's wrath against sin. God demands perfection. And there's only one perfect one, the eternal Son of God, Jesus. He fulfilled all the demands of the law, which we have broken. And then he died on the cross to pay the full penalty, which we could never pay for our sins. Number three, have you responded to his desire to welcome you to himself? Christianity is Christ. Not only as the true Israel of God, but also as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I've never been to Israel. I'd like to go sometime. But if I never make it, I know in my heart spiritually that I've already been to the true Israel of God based on a faith relationship to the living Christ. Is that true in your life? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that this supper we're about to take represents your anguish for lost sinners. Your willingness to be a substitute in our place. 
the fact that you, Lord Jesus, are the sum total of history as the true Israel of God and as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Father, we come this morning praying that all of these realities would be true in our life and that, Lord, you would bless us as we consider the Lord Jesus, his body and blood for us and for our salvation. Bless us, Lord, as we move toward your table now. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.